0: Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for the entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, we hope you are in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. So today we have David Smith on the line. David is the portfolio manager of Green Tech Capital Advisors uh, Investment Management. An organization that has an investment focus on low carbon energy, green technologies, and related business investments. The company is based in New York and has offices in San Francisco, Zurich, and Tokyo. David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, give us your background and how did you end up at Green Tech? Uh,
1: yeah, so my background is I'm a chart accountant by, by training, um, I, I grew up in Toronto and um, worked for Deloitte & Touche, uh, covering primarily capital goods, industrial type equipment companies, uh, more on the tax audit and accounting side, and uh, migrated from there and to work for a company called Newcourt Credit Group, really uh, talking around uh, financing for capital goods. Uh, shifted gears in 2007 or 1997, my apologies, um, moved to, to Citigroup in New York City, uh, and really focusing around industrials, machinery, uh, engineering, and construction type companies, uh, working for a senior analyst and and learning the ropes of the investment industry. Uh, in two or sorry, in 1998-99, I was given an opportunity to really form a new group at City focused around uh, what I would call alternative energy. At the time, there were a lot of emerging opportunities. Really probably more banking related at the time, a lot of earlier stage companies targeting a new area that um, was popping up around areas like solar, wind, um, and and some more emerging technologies like flywheels, microturbines, and fuel cells. So with this uh, need for financing, uh, there was a a lot of interest at Citi at the time on serving customers. around IPOs and alternative forms of financing. So we, uh, initiated, um, coverage in 98, 99. I was a senior analyst covering, uh, what was then alternative energy. A lot of this rode into the tech bubble. Um, you know, you had fuel cell companies, uh, like Ballard power or fuel cell energy that offered a lot of promise, uh, for the future. Um, but really had no, what I would call commercial or recurring revenues. So, um, the, the market caps of these companies rode, rode the tech boom up to valuations north of five billion dollars, um, with at the time very little commercial revenues. So, what it created for me was a great opportunity to see something, a lot of momentum in the market, and, and a lot of um, the hype that that accompanied some of what we even see today in areas like, you know, blockchain, um, uh, Bitcoin, and, and areas like. Uh, the, the marijuana stocks uh, primarily based in Canada but but you know having seen a lot of this tech bubble and a lot of it um, deflating into late 2001 um, it provide a high degree of skepticism as to what really works and what's really economically viable um, in in energy uh, you know and I, I think just the the quick takeaway you can say is levelized cost of energy so at the end of the day, something has to be economically viable uh, in order to be successful, whether it's you know sustainable, green, or not. Uh, the economics have to make sense at the end of the day. I like to call it green has to be green uh, in the case of sustainability. So with the, with the tech bubble bursting in 2001, a lot of my focus shifted more to um, what I would call more clean tech focus. So less emerging, uh, alternative energy technologies and more clean tech opportunities. So, you know, when I looked at, when I look at areas, um, you know, like solar and wind, can they be economically viable to, uh, make a dent in, in the, the global power stage? And, and do they make sense as far as, the environment goes. Do they make sense as far as the economics goes for long-term success? You know, and, and at the time, I would tell you it was challenging. Um, areas like solar, for instance, solar was twelve dollars per watt uh, for a solar cell, which you know is astronomical when you consider today the price of a solar cell is about twenty-one cents, uh, the current price. So. You know, there's there's the value of technology and, and what can happen over a long period of time. Um, certainly, when we look at things like the semiconductor cycle and and um, and the ability of cost to come out of something in the long run. So, similarly, you know, when I look at areas like wind power, you know, we've seen massive cost reductions there, and um, now it's an economically viable technology. So my my focus at Citigroup kind of morphed into what I would call, you know, renewables, um, more sustainable, uh, energy che- generation technologies, areas like, um, smart metering, uh, areas like water, um, you know, disinfection treatment, et cetera. Uh, and really, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of this is targeting around efficiency, be it any type of resources and, and using resources more effectively. Uh, I left into at the end of 2006, um, went to a long short fund called Longbow capital and really at the Longbow targeted more on the renewables, the industrial side, and the energy infrastructure, um, worked, worked at Longbow for uh, just over three years. Um, thereafter went to a firm called Gabelli, uh, worked for Mario, a gentleman named Mario Gabelli running the Gabelli green fund and, uh, developed a, a long, long only product there as well. Uh, called the uh, Roads, Bridges, and Infrastructure, or RBI Fund, Uh, left Gabelli uh, in the beginning of 2014 to go to Greentech, where I am today. And at Greentech, I was given the opportunity to come in as a partner, uh, chief investment officer, and the portfolio manager of the Sustainable Growth Fund. And the Sustainable Growth Fund is really focused around what I would broadly term as energy, food, and water. Uh, we're a sustainability-focused fund, uh, really targeting impact, companies that can provide an impact uh, in the products and services that they offer to, uh, uh, to their end customers. Um, and keeping in mind as well, uh, the types of companies that we want to invest in are companies that uh, ha- can make a, a positive Environmental impact, uh, not only from their own operations, but also again the products and services that they uh, that they sell. So that's a a synopsis, maybe a little longer than you were hoping for, but uh, maybe that covers it.
0: Right. No, I appreciate the uh, the information on that. Um, So, uh, what what's uh, do you guys do you guys uh, Green Tech is is part of a overall larger group, if I recall. Uh, can you tell us about that and, and, and how do you guys uh, do you guys look at uh, do you guys take you know uh, accredited investors tell us how it's kind of set
1: up yeah so the firm actually was started in uh, 2009 by an individual named Jeff McDermott and uh, uh, first employee par- his partner from day one was Robert Schultz um, and the two of them, initially started the business as uh, an investment banking or advisory service company. Uh, Jeff's background was uh, the head of investment bank, co-head of investment bank, I should say, at, at UBS. Uh, and essentially, the, the the firm was founded to um, provide financial services, advisory services, primarily targeting around M&A uh, to companies. Uh, that offered sustainable products and services. Um, today, uh, we are split between the advisory business uh, and the, the asset management business. So, on the asset management business, um, which I've broadly spoken about, the Sustainable Growth Fund, we also have a second product called the Emerging Markets Sustainable Growth Fund, and it's really focused on uh, countries other than. North America, Euro, Europe, and in uh, and Japan. So really, targeting emerging markets, areas like Africa, Egypt, um, China, etc.
0: Okay. And what do you? What's the? Uh, what's the assets under management there at GreenTech?
1: I It's just under a hundred million dollars today.
0: Okay. And uh, so, when you guys when you guys look at these different investments. Um, What's what's kind of the target? Obviously, I, I think for investors, you guys you guys are looking at the best returns for the investors. So, how do you guys kind of kind of weigh, looking at the return side and and the best value for your investors in the fund, versus uh, looking at some of these companies that are starting out that that may or may not be very, uh, you know, cash flow positive or in a in a in a sector that's uh, you know developing that that hasn't really become uh,
1: robust. Well, I think that comes back to some of what I talked about in my, my uh, history at Citigroup. So I think when you look at these companies, you have to really take a lens to say, you know, what's commercially viable here and what's what's not. And, you know, coming back to my uh, initial comment, you know, green has to be green. Um, you know, and by that, I mean that technology has to be economically viable. You know, we can look at something today that's Perhaps not commercially viable, like for instance, cold fusion, which offers a lot of opportunities in terms of uh, low-cost energy, um, you know, not harmful to the environment, not a lot, not a lot of pollutants involved, etc. Um, you know, we can look at something like that and say, you know, how do we balance that versus the cost or the or the technological feasibility? Sure, it would be a great opportunity, but in the long run, is it? viable today. And there's a lot of risks in that path to getting commercially viable today. Uh, When I look at something like solar, for instance, though, really it it comes down to technology that actually worked back in, you know, 98, 99, uh, I used to look at a company called Astro Power, for instance, uh, and they had a roughly 10% efficient cell. uh, So it was economically viable, but the cost actually was astronomical, it was $12 a lot. As I mentioned, um, if I look at today, you've got solar cells uh, pushing northward of 20% efficient, and a cost of roughly just over 20 cents a, a watt for a for a solar cell. So, yeah, I, I think that it's an interesting balance that you 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 put out. Um, we we look at our fund for, from the perspective of companies that are existing old world companies that have to adapt in order to remain economically viable in this day and age of sustainability so if i look at um, a lot of the upstarts a lot of the emerging companies you know a company like even like a tesla for instance burns a lot of cash but they have an economically viable product there's a lot of execution risks involved in the process a company like um Bloom Energy, for instance, though one of the challenges is really the cost of their fuel cell, and similar to companies like Ballard Power, Plug Power, and uh, Fuel Cell Energy, the, the thing about um, fuel cells has been has always been really the cost. It's not whether or not it really works. So there's a lot of risks involved in the in the path to getting to commercial viability. Um, you know, I come back to solar fairly frequently because uh, it it has jumped the curve to commercial viability. So when you look at utility scale solar today, you know, we're looking at prices that are actually more competitive than uh, incumbents like coal, nuclear, and natural gas. So, you know, it's, it's really, you know, when I look at something like solar, it's not really solar competing against solar the companies don't sit there and you know, actively certainly they they bid on specific contracts, but you know nobody ever sits there and says, "What kind of solar panel do you have on your roof?" It's it's you know it's it's really a, an anonymous product. It's ultimately you know it's driven by returns. And you know if I can generate electricity for four cents a kilowatt hour, that is is certainly going to win market share from the grid. So what solar really competes with is the incumbent solar. You know, sorry, the the incumbent, which is the grid. So, you know, the challenge with solar, though, really, is that it's a race to the bottom because it's it's you never see in, in my whole career, really, of looking at solar, you never see the price or the cost of solar panels going up, Um You know, it's always been a a race to get to a lower cost per kilowatt hour because you can't really make inroads into competing with the solar or the grid unless the price of solar comes down. Um, The other side of what you you mentioned, just to round out this part of the discussion, is finding companies that are economically viable today. And you know, there's a lot of incumbent companies, companies that make products uh, in the market today that are faced with challenges uh, of more sustainable technologies, and one area that I can point to, for instance, is LED lighting. You know, LED lighting really kind of came on the scene in 2006, and in the United States, um, as far as uh, Congress went, there was it was sponsored by a gentleman named Fred Upton uh, from the Republican Party, and you know, there was talk at the time, really, of of um, mandating uh, the use of LED technology because it used 70 to 80 percent less electricity than the incumbent, which in this case was uh, an incandescent light. And, you know, when you look at the the price of LEDs when they came out, it was roughly $35 a bulb. Uh, Today, I can go buy an LED bulb at Home Depot for roughly a dollar a bulb. And, you know, what we're seeing is incandescents are falling by the wayside. They're you know, when I look at companies, you know, old world companies, which traditionally were built on more fluorescent or incandescent type lighting technologies like an Acuity or a Philips, you know, they've now shifted over roughly 70% of their product line to LEDs. So, you know, in this case, what I would say was it's either evolve or die. So, you know, the, the, the outcome really is you have to evolve to actually be remain economically viable because, you know, the way I always kind of characterize these things or try to characterize these is, is this disruption that's provided by a solar panel, a wind turbine or an led bulb ultimately is a better way to do things. It's, 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 I I tend to term it as creative destruction. It's, it's, it's basically a better way of doing things. And in the end, you know, if the economics work, then, yeah, it's actually it's it's probably going to be economically viable and will take market share. And if the if the incumbent old world companies don't evolve, then they become irrelevant. Um, you know, the last example I can point to, which has probably been more in the news lately, is, you know, the the evolution of the electric vehicle. You know, I personally am of the belief that if Elon Musk didn't come along we would not be seeing the evolution of the, elect or of the electric vehicle as fast as it's, as it's happened. And I think he's pushed the industry a decade ahead of when it probably would have started to, to evolve. And you know, the, one of the biggest things about Tesla that's occurred is that they've taken a lot of market share. Um, the number one four-door luxury vehicle in the United States as well as several markets in Europe, is the Tesla Model S. And if you look at the incumbents in that category, it's Mercedes, it's BMW, it's Audi, um, Porsche. And you know these are the companies that are losing market share to Tesla. Now it's incumbent upon them to come up with, either come up with their own electric vehicles to recapture that market share, and become valid players in the market, or to die off. And yeah, you know, I, I think the reaction you've seen—you know, Mercedes is coming out with the EQC, Audi's coming out with the e-tron, Porsche is coming out with the Taycan, um, BMW's got a, a, several vehicles coming out. So you know, really, what we're seeing is the evolution of the auto company in, in order to survive long term. So there's opportunities to invest both in new disruptive companies as well as incumbent uh, companies. In my mind
0: right so so going back there's a lot of issues you covered there a lot of different different topics um, going back on, on solar panels how do you how do you see solar panels competing with their their efficiencies at, at high temperatures uh, in the sun uh, storage of the power uh, the footprint of manufacturer uh, of manufacturing solar panels and then their usable life and and how you uh, take care of them after after their usable life is up what are your thoughts on those?
1: Well, it, it varies uh, by technology. So you've actually talked about um, a few different variables that have been addressed by the companies uh, as as these, this has evolved over the past 10, 15 years. So heat is, has been a pertinent issue that came up um, and how how solar panels uh, perform under certain or, or different conditions, You know, extreme heat or extreme cold. Um, you know, there has been, uh, there's two different primary technologies. One is a silicon-based solar cell, and the other is thin film technologies. Um, thin film has been widely viewed as having um, significantly uh, larger market opportunities over a period of time, uh, given the cost characteristics. It's been more of a technology hurdle that is has um, barred, Thin film technologies from working. Uh, there's been one company in particular that's been extremely successful in thin film, and, and it's a cadmium telluride uh, thin film module. Um, it's for solar, and First Solar's panels actually perform better than silicon in extreme heat scenarios uh, and extreme cool scenarios. And you know, as a result, they've they've done it very well uh, in terms of market share. Their their cost in relation to the efficiency um, has been a bit more of a challenging argument, um, but we've seen the efficiency of their cells rise as they've evolved the technologies significantly over the past five years. They're coming out with a new a new um, module, um, it's called the Series 6 module, um, kind of at the end of this year and into 2019 that is Uh, anticipate to solve a lot of the the cost versus efficiency issues related to the technology. Uh, On the other hand, on the polysilicon side, as I mentioned, it it doesn't tend to perform as well in in extreme heat scenarios, but it it actually uh, polysilicon has always yielded a a higher efficiency than thin film technologies. Um, A polysilicon panel has been typically in the range of 17 to 20% efficiency, 21% perhaps, uh, whereas a monosilicon technology has sort of, has been north of 22%, uh, with a theoretical maximum, uh, as I recall, around 25%. So, you know, and and on top of that, it, it's on, on a cost per uh, efficiency basis, it's it's been a little bit more attractive than than the thin film technology. So. You know, there's advantages to both. Um, you know, it really comes down to, at the end of the day performance and 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 uh, cost per kilowatt hour of electricity. But you know, I think one of the things that, that we have to really look at in terms of solar technology is. Let's get beyond the panel cost. Let's get beyond the inverter cost and the system cost. Let's get let's get to the point where we're talking about levelized cost of energy. And if you look at the right. levelized cost of energy, what that really evaluates is the cost of an electron. Right. Absolutely.
0: So how, how long do these, with the new technology and the solar panel, how long do these things, uh, what's their usable life these days?
1: Well, the... the you know, there's degradation of the panels. Um, you know, but but most of the companies actually guarantee the performance um, up to 80% over 20 plus years. So, you know, we're seeing um, we're seeing uh, projects and PPAs signed, uh, power purchase agreements signed that uh, extend 20-25 years. Uh, on installations. And so, you know, the companies have guaranteed this, uh, they stand by it. Clearly we don't have a lot of history. Uh, but, you know, if I go back to those companies that I mentioned as a star, like a company, like an Astro power, the, the technology, solar technology has been around for a significant amount of time. Um, right. You know, but, but going back, you know, I, back to my Citigroup days, you know, as an example, I used to talk to a broker who was based in Molokai Hawaii and, you know, he had a system that he installed in 1972, and was still generating the the um, proclaimed output for the, for the system. Um, the only thing that had to be replaced, um, and I believe it was more than once, was the inverter, which is really electronics. And you know, he, the problem is is that moisture got in, and uh, and the, it had to be replaced. Which everybody, you know, when we factor in these installations, and when you factor in large projects, you always. In, you you know, you always uh, factor in a replacement for the uh, inverter at 10 to 15 years. So, you know, what I would say right. to you is that the technology does seem to hold up.
0: Okay. And and what's what's your thoughts on the on the storage side? You know, obviously we know that the solar solar doesn't work too well when it's dark outside. So you have the storage yeah. the storage side. And how does that coincide with coming up with a storage solution that would make solar compete on a base load power basis?
1: yeah it, it, that's a very interesting conundrum, and uh, you know it's, it's something that's evolved again pretty significantly over the past five years. Uh, one of the facilitators for the market for storage has really been the evolution of the automobile and certainly the uprising of Tesla, uh, and Tesla's you know, on its own leveraged this into uh, the power grid as well with installations for backup power and, and ride through electricity in areas like Australia you've probably heard about. Um, but right. that said, I, you know, that, the, the equation changes significantly when you start adding storage into the mix. And, you know, we talk to residential uh, deployments. We talk to commercial and utility scale deployments. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, what you're doing is storing uh, electricity at certain var- or varying load levels uh, for period of time and obviously the more batteries you put in the longer you can you can store that energy but um yeah you know our view is that it's it's a game changer and that the, the cost again we're, we're always talking cost here but the cost has come down so significantly uh in terms of battery storage you know when i first started looking at batteries it was upwards of a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour now we're down talking a hundred dollars um right you know it, it doesn't matter if it's automotive. It doesn't matter if it's grid storage. But you know, our our view is that in the long run, this is what changes the game as far as um, as far as the the grid goes and having baseload power. Because you know, realistically, you have to use that power as as it's generated today. And um, if you can store it, um, it comes down to the economic viability, which we think has improved significantly over the past five years and right. will improve more. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's move on just a little bit. We'll come back to Tesla in a moment. Um, so just kind of hammering down through some other sources. So what's your thoughts? Uh, well, yeah, on this one here. So what, what energy forms over the next decade do you see dominating both in the U.S. and globally?
1: Well, you know, again, it comes down to what our view on the economic situation is, because, you know, I think one of the things is you, know, you can say that you like solar or, or you can say that you like coal or you like nuclear. But you know, I think one of the, the, the rational decisions that's being made out there is ultimately driving down to the, the electron. And you, know, there's definitely uh, lobbying, political type interests that seem to sway in favor of one technology, or the other. But I think what you have to look at at the end of the day is what the companies do. So, what, what, how do the companies react? Companies are always going to react in their own best interest in terms of generating a return and a return for shareholders. And right. you know, when I look at uh, look at the cost of technologies, you know, if I look at conventional technologies, I can look at you know, gas combined cycle, coal, nuclear, etc. Um, you know. What is the cost of generating electricity? And, you know, if I look at, uh, there's a, an annual study that's put out by Lazar that kind of talks about, you know, the, the, the levelized cost of energy amongst various technologies. But, you know, if I look at the price or the cost, or the, the cost of generating electricity, one thing about a lot of conventional power is really the marginal cost, right? I have to right. pay for the turbine, I have to pay for the you know the the facilities, et cetera, associated with gas, coal, and nuclear. You know but if I look at the marginal cost, it's obviously highly dependent and highly variable based upon the price of natural gas, the price of uranium, the price of coal. Um, the one thing in term in, when I look at renewables is that ultimately the feedstock, uh, in this case, uh, solar rays or or wind uh, is free. And, and ultimately, you're paying for the cost of the system is paid for up front. Really, the, the, the biggest variable factor is wind speed, which we hear a lot, quarter to quarter uh, by by region, or solar insulation levels. Uh, so ultimately, you're looking to maximize uh, uptime or availability as well as capacity factors across the technologies. Right.
0: So... so uh, <clears throat> Let me let me ask you let me ask you this on another one. And of course, you know, cost cost versus price is interesting, depending on what country you live in, what state you live in, and how many uh, you know extra fees and taxes are tacked onto your power bill. Um, but do you do you see moving on to these other sources, uh, David? Do you see hydropower as a growing source of energy in the U.S. or is or has it had its day?
1: Um, I, my view is that it's it's regional and it's it's gonna it's gonna fit. power profile of of certain regions you know if i look at the canada hudson's bay corridor if i look at the pacific northwest in the u.s and then certainly smaller kind of localized projects it does make sense uh you know when i look at the, the the price of of generating electricity from from um uh hydro it's it's certainly very attractive and and if i look at you know, it's interesting. I was listening to a, a podcast this weekend on uh, mining Bitcoin. But you know, one of the reasons why this firm set up in British Columbia, specifically in Old logging Town, was that the cost of electricity supplied by Boralex was roughly four cents a kilowatt hour. So, you know, when you look at these highly cost sensitive industries that are... are Looking for that use a lot of electricity. Yeah, I think hydro makes a lot of sense, and it's it's specific to certain regions, just like something like geothermal is, for instance. Um, geothermal right. has been very successful in the in the um, southwest, for instance. But but you know, you, ultimately, what you need at the end of the day is a reliable geothermal deposit. Uh, parts of South America are similar. Um, Hawaii's got some opportunity, but you need. That geothermal uh, geograph- or geographic situation, geothermal situation, uh, right. to to make the economics work, because ultimately at the end of the day, electricity is about reliability and and uptime. Sure, absolutely.
0: So so, so what's uh, what's your take on natural gas power?
1: Well, we're, you know, uh, the one thing about natural gas from a CO two emissions perspective is that it's it's the lowest, you know. When it's, when it's burnt, uh, you know, the emissions are, are, are the lowest of the conventional power sources, uh, com- comparing specifically to coal. Um, you know, I, I'm actually favorable for natural gas as far as uh, a baseload power scenario goes because I'm, I'm actually quite aware that today that solar and wind can't provide reliable baseload power until energy storage comes into play on a large scale. Um, In the meantime, I I do think that natural gas provides the most economical and environmentally friendly baseload power scenario uh, and will continue to do so for several years, many years, in fact. I would say you can't rule it out uh, for for a long period of time. And and on top of that, it's got a low marginal cost. Um, uh, The the price of natural gas is is hovered anywhere from two to four dollars. Uh, per MMBTU Btu for a long right. period of time, and, and given the, the abundant supply of natural gas, I think it's a, a very viable technology uh, for the long run.
0: Okay, and and how do you feel with, with some of the folks in the states? There are some of the uh, the folks that are not happy with the fracking and so forth. The you know the, the, the kind of the let's just put it this way: the mining end of these these uh, inputs that go into these uh, technologies sources.
1: Yeah, I don't want to come up. I don't want to be saying that the, you know, that making a case for the environmental safety of fracking. I do. I do actually concur that there are uh, definitely safety and environmental issues that, that go along with fracking. But what you know, I I think part of it had to do with the Wild West uh, scenario that that this was a new market, new opportunity, and everybody was rushing in uh, to to try and stake their claim um, early on. Uh, I think now what we've got is a more organized scenario uh, that is developed whereby regulations are coming into place. And I think that regulations are absolutely essential. Uh, You know, you've probably heard about some of the issues in pennsylvania as far as fracking goes certainly down in texas and oklahoma earthquakes are certainly something that's come up as well um you know the question becomes what is the root cause of some of these problems now when you start or or contaminating the water supply for thousands of people you know clearly this is a this is a, a an issue that has to be dealt with. So there's some, there's a lot of controversies. So one of the things that we've found um, is there's some companies out there that are making more environmentally friendly fracking fluids, for instance. Um, one of the biggest problems with fracking fluids is basically it's, it's diesel fuel. It's benzene that's being pumped into the ground. It's getting into the water table. It's releasing radioactive components. And, and the question ultimately becomes what if it gets what if it contaminates the water system, and that's part of the issue in, in Pennsylvania, for instance, that's occurred. And and so, you know, can you come up with a green fracking solution? You know, we have found companies that ha- that do provide a green solution to uh, to this issue. Um, you know, earthquakes are obviously another issue that I mentioned. A lot of this has been speculated around water reinjection that's happened and and ch- shooting. Uh, uh, well water down, used well water down into uh, storage wells under underground caverns, uh, and disrupting the the the, uh, the geophysics of, of the landscape. Uh, then there's obviously areas such as you know more local issues such as uh, as um, trucks and road damage, etc. And who foots the bill for all this? So as I said, it, it, it's it's been more early stage. Um, I truly believe that that one of the issues around fracking has been regulation and and coming up with ways to regulate some of those issues that i mentioned as well as areas like methane release uh, but sure. you know this this ultimately question you know can we come up with a scenario where we actually control the environment enough to make this uh, economically viable. And I think you can. And clearly, companies are going to resist higher degrees of regulation. But at the end of the day, you know, it's got to be done responsibly. And that's that's, you know, something that we look at very closely. Uh, We do believe natural gas is a viable, cleaner alternative. But, you know, we we do concur that it has to be has to come out of the ground in an environmentally sustainable manner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because, you know, the technology is always well ahead of the uh, regulators. The regulators always seem to be behind on it. Right. Uh, like catch know, up. Right. Absolutely. So uh, on another issue, uh, here's one for you. What do you uh, what's your take on when you believe the U.S. will actually be off coal power?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question, but I think 2030, again, it comes... 2030 2035. I think that's a that's a fair guess. Uh, it's, you know, your guess is as good as mine at this point. But I think when we, I think we're making progress in the right direction. Um, you know, five, seven years ago, coal was comprising 40, 45 percent, roughly, of the, the kilowatt hours of electricity we're generating in the United States. Today, we're down right. towards 20 percent, and moving below that. You know, we're, I again, this comes back to the response of companies, right? When we look at you know sure. the cost of producing a kilowatt hour of electricity from coal on a new build basis, you know you're looking at at north of, of 10, 10, uh, or, or sorry roughly $100 dollars per uh, kilowatt hour of electricity. You know like does it make sense to continue to build? You know when you've you've got incumbent older plants that are roughly you know forty fifty dollars fifty sixty you know that level makes sense to continue to operate them so we've seen all these plants that were probably scheduled for retirement you know at forty fifty years the average age of of a plant in the United States is more than forty years, so they're extending the life in a lot of cases of these but you're not building new plants to comply with new regulations you're Somewhere in the range of 60 to 110 dollars, you know, per kilowatt hour of electricity. You know, right. so it comes it comes down to do, do the economics make sense, and that's where you're seeing sure. utilities make the decision to retire plants and go with cheaper forms of electricity. So if I look at you know coming back to that Lazard study, you know, if I look at at utility scale unsubsidized crystalline solar at the utility scale, you're looking at $46 to 53 cents, $53, roughly per kilowatt hour. So, you know, it, right. it, it makes economic sense to move in that direction, you know, versus, you know, new new coal targeted at 96 to $231. So it it, it, it just makes a lot of sense economically to move in that direction. And that's why I, I think right. the, the, the companies, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a car company, a motorcycle company, or a company that makes air conditioning units. Ultimately, you have to make the right decisions based upon the regulatory environment that's out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely on its way out as far as a, a source for energy. I mean, you know, obviously it's met coals needed for other things in, in other industries, but certainly the power the power side's on its way out. Um so, so going forward, do you see with renewables, uh, you know, such as solar and wind, uh, at this point in the game, are they, are they, are they able to stand by themselves if if there wasn't any subsidies, any any grants and funding from, you know, various agencies and private outfits? Do you see that renewables and solar at this point, where they are in their life cycle, that they can stand on their own?
1: Yeah. So I, I think some of the success from companies out there uh, is testament to this. But if If I look at some of the rooftop solar companies in the United States, like Sunrun and Vivint Solar, they're providing electricity to homeowners um, at a price that is at least a 20% discount to what that homeowner would buy. They guarantee this, by the way, uh, to what the homeowner would buy electricity from from the grid. So they they're gradually opening up in specific markets where it makes economic sense based on the insulation and the system cost. But the system cost has has come down uh, and continues to come down. And we believe it'll come down further in time. But you know, ultimately what you need to get is the price to the point where it, it makes sense versus the, the incumbent. And you know, on a utility scale basis, as I mentioned to you're roughly at about fifty dollars a megawatt hour today. On utility scale, unsubsidized, and that probably implies a system price in the range of 75 cents to a dollar per watt. And you know that comes down significantly. You know, we've seen the price of solar drop roughly 80% over the past five years. In, in the case of wind, it's roughly 50% over the past five years. But you know, the the that the key here is really driving market adoption and opening up new markets as that cost of electricity comes down you know if i look at any market globally realistically you don't have any chance of competing in the market if you're a multiple of for instance of what the incumbent cost of electricity is so you know and but then you've got other markets where you know in the india and africa for instance that are starting to open up because the cost of the panel has come down so significantly and you know I heard an interesting analogy not long ago that talked about in India how the, a family's decision uh, on a solar cell for their their home uh, to power their light uh, was and, and charge their cell phone was really dependent upon either a solar cell or a goat and you know it was roughly the same price but you know the, the ultimately the upside from having the solar cell was taking um, taking a uh, uh, what's they burn a fuel um, within their their homes for um, uh, for like elect- for light um, I forget what it 's called right now, but it's it 's on the top tip of my tongue but they ultimately it 's a, a not a safe situation there's in- inhalation of fumes et cetera and and so you 're providing electricity or or light. Uh, within the home. And then you're also providing electricity in terms of the ability to charge cell phones. Cell phones tend to be the dominant technology. Um, they don't have uh, phone lines there. And so, you know, in in the case of this, these villages, they walk five miles a day to charge their cell phones, for instance. So, you know, it provides the opportunity to put electricity into the home. So, you know, there, there are, are offsetting opportunities. But, you know, in time, ultimately, what my view is is that, the, the cost it ultimately drives market acceptance, uh, no matter what market you're in. Right.
0: Are you, in in general, are you of a view that that going forward, at least over the next couple decades, you see that that wind, solar, uh, natural gas, nuclear, there's there's a certain energy mix that's gonna that's gonna be put in place, uh, not only in the United States and and also in other countries. Do you kind of see that that some of these sources all kind of play a role at this current state in the in the technology advancement
1: Uh, i'm not not sure exactly what you mean can you explain that
0: what what's what's a give me an example of an energy mix that you see uh in the United States over the next you know 10 to 15 years. I mean what 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 sources do you see playing the dominant roles?
1: Oh I see I see okay. So um first of all I would I would tell you obviously nuclear has, has been phased out. Um one of the biggest problems around nuclear has been cost overruns and and the time to deploy the technology. You know one of the biggest advantages from for for solar and wind is really I could deploy multiple megawatts of electricity in in less than 6 months period of time so so clearly there's a, a development opportunity or a development advantage of renewables as compared to uh, coal nuclear and in some cases even natural gas so I think it's a, there's an opportunity in terms of deploying uh, technology very fast and on top of that it's distributed technology in some cases so it might be rooftop that is actually used within the own within the actual building so I think that there you know a lot of these things that play into what renewables are, uh, versus, um, you know, what, what the incumbent technologies are is there's an evolution that's occurring. And I, 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 my view is that, um, with declining solar and wind costs, um, to the point of, you know, absolute economic viability without incentives, I think you're going to see a lot more. I think that it's, it's not at all, uh, Unreasonable to assume more than 50% renewable penetration in 15, 20 years. Uh, you know, and I, I think obviously the writing's on the wall for coal uh, as far as emissions go. Uh, you know, I, I, just, I just don't see it being economically viable in terms of the cost nor the emissions profile. Um, and coming back to nuclear, I, I think it, it faces a lot of the same issues, you know, in terms of hazardous waste in terms of the cost, in terms of the time to deploy. Um, yeah, it, it, I think you'll see those technologies drop significantly, maybe in the range of 20 to 25 percent combined, and then the remainder made up primarily of, of natural gas.
0: Right, right. And you're, you're speaking specifically to the U.S. Um, so, so what's on a, on another issue talking, just kind of switching gears, uh, getting back over to nuclear for a moment. What's your view on the news that Bill Gates through Terra power, the department of energy, Rolls Royce, new scale and other names are aggressively getting into small modular reactors. What's your thought on that?
1: Um, I, I think it's, it, you know, ultimately comes down to the cost viability again. Um, you know, it, it, it the challenge with nuclear is, is again, the, the cost to develop, uh, the, the time to develop, and I, I, I think that, you know, in my history of, of working in this, in the past 15, 20 years, I've heard of small nuclear being discussed many times. But, um, you know, the reality is, is you, you haven't seen the U.S. introduce uh, a new nuclear facility since I think nineteen seventy nine, my memory correct is correct. Um, the two that are being built right now, uh, one by Scana and one by Southern Company. Uh, Scana has been basically put on hold indefinitely, cancelled uh, due to cost overruns and, and time. Um, and, and Southern Company has already more than doubled the budget and the time frame. You know, when you look at you know the other example out there is Finland has had a project that is just coming to completion now that was supposed to take four years and it's taken 14 years to build um, at triple the cost that they expected so yeah i, I it, it's definitely unproven i you know we can talk about things like fuel cells I've, I've been covering fuel cells for many years and you know there's been a lot of promise in terms of the cost but you know at the end right. of the day we have to think about what the cost per kilowatt hour of electricity is and whether there's a market for it so right. if i can if I can do solar, if I can do wind, you know, how does that compare to nuclear? And and I'm, you know, it depends on what the time is, the timeline is in terms of how long it takes to get one of these new facilities up and running, the micro, uh, micro nuclear. But I I think that you know everything is an open open book until we start to really look at what the market opportunity is. And I think it's important to listen, not only to management teams, but also to people who understand the technology and we try and do both.
0: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we follow, as you know, we we follow the, 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 uh, the nuclear energy side a little bit. We've done quite a bit of research uh, over the last two years on it. And, and there's these things that are kind of popping up, whether it's, you know, states states introducing stuff to to help subsidize some of these plants because of their baseload capabilities. Uh, go to France. France, you know, was talking about we're going to, you know, be off nuclear uh, more or less by 2025. And then a, a week ago, uh, the president there said that we're going to bump that now to 2035 because we can't do it. And then, you know, you have you have a Germany who says, oh, we're going to shut down our nuclear plants and we're just going to buy it from France, even though they didn't mention that part. And then recently there has been some protests in Germany about power bills and so forth and, and why these plants have been sitting idle. And then, as you know, too, Japan is, is slowly re, uh, restarting. And, you know, Japan's got issues because Japan's an island nation. They They're limited on space. They're limited on a lot of things. And so they have these plants that they've uh, slowly restarted. I believe there's nine operating now. And then, of course, you have China and India that are that are doing a build-out on the traditional plant side. But what, what caught me that was interesting about these SMRs and the backing, and me being originally from Oregon, I, I kind of follow new scale because it kind of came out of Oregon State University, is that these these new small modular reactors, SMRs, can more or less be manufactured in a warehouse and delivered, delivered by transit, highway transit. Modular. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's very, it's very interesting, to, and to think of what economies of scale could come from that. I'm, I'm speculating, but uh, it is interesting. You know, names like Rolls, R- royce getting into a Department of Energy funding, uh, various programs to do research. Uh, it does, it does sound interesting. Of course, I think we're at least five to six years out before we even have one of these test, test uh, systems. I think Rolls-Royce is trying to do more or less the same in the UK. But it is interesting to see. Kind
1: of where that's going. Well, yeah, and I, and I think that a lot of companies, certainly with the Tesla example I gave you earlier, like you know, companies have to look at evolution, right? If companies don't change, you know, do they become irrelevant in time? And I think it's it's important that any management team has an active R and D program and. You know, it's it's something that we look at when we evaluate companies. How much do you spend on R and D? But what do you what do you work on the R and D side? What you know keeps you up at night in terms of uh, you know evolving technology and yeah, ultimately you know we could end up seeing at some day um, electric airplanes. And you know, is a company like Boeing putting money into into electrification of airplanes? And you know, obviously, light weighting comes into play and. lot of other factors but you know i I think that i I think it's it's certainly viable and you know it's something that has to be be reviewed uh as you know i mentioned coal fusion earlier and you know but then it comes down to in time you know fuel cell energy for instance has been around i believe since 1967 and they still really don't have what i would call an economically viable commercial product on the market and You know, when I when I look at that, I'm kind of comparing to gas turbines, for instance, that can provide base load power as well. But, you know, I'm not saying that the price or their cost hasn't come down uh, over a period of time. But but really what we have to look at when we look at all of this is really that that electron is a commodity. And do we care? Do we care or or does it make a difference how it's. It's generated, and you know if I start throwing carbon pricing in, you know it obviously is a benefit to renewables because you're you've got uh, very low emissions uh, if any emissions and uh, you know that has to be factored into the price and and the, the price of that energy and so you know i I at the one of the things I learned early on when looking at at energy markets is really you have to look at LCOE. You know, if you could get one technology that's highly, you know, much higher cost, but the cost inputs to generate electricity uh, or initial cost, and then the cost inputs to generate the electricity are much lower. And, you know, it really comes down to what that cost is to create an electron, because one electron is pretty much equal to another electron. It's just, you know, how do we make it? Sure, absolutely.
0: And, you know, how do we we get it in, in the most... Carbon-free, you know, basis as we can to to help help with the fight against climate change and so forth, and so right. yeah, I, I I have kind of the view that certainly the United States being a old uh, nuclear country, uh, you know, being sec- second to only the UK in in the deployment of commercial reactors, you know, back uh, some 62, 63 years ago. Yeah. Um, I do think that uh, if if this SMR technology does take off, and and one of the side factors to those SMRs is what's interesting is their w- water treatment capabilities, and uh, aside from their their safety uh, capabilities that that uh, these conventional reactors don't have, and so I kind of see in the United States that that the conventional reactors will eventually die off, and if SMR technology does get adopted, uh, because of they have some Pretty impressive benefits that are that are coming out from these these developers. Um, you know, it will be interesting to see if the United States starts to adopt these smaller, you know, fifty megawatt plants uh, that are mm. much smaller and, and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, let me. Hey, let me and you're, you're, oh sure.
1: Sorry. Well, and just the final point, like I would just say that you're seeing a lot of of shutdowns on the nuclear side too, more driven by economics and 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 life really right so is it does it make sense to inject another 100 million 400 million whatever the number is into a, a 50 60 year old plant to extend its life and you know, that's that's really you know the, the balancing equation for utility uh, you know they've got ratepayers who they have to answer to and and to consumer advocates you know ultimately does it make sense to do that or does it make sense to go on to a less polluting, or, or lower cost electricity uh, a form uh, a form of electricity.
0: Sure, absolutely. In the U.S., we all know. Uh, at least I'm I'm speculating. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the U.S. is probably one of the highest cost. Uh, jurisdictions i mean obviously it's it's cheaper much cheaper in france france nuclear program is much cheaper than what the u.s has going and of course in places like china and saudi arabia india it's all it's all a matter of jurisdiction what's what is the total cost and so it's it's interesting to to consider those those approaches too and and just with china's sheer uh, population uh, it's it's interesting to see with the government's push towards uh, obviously, nu- nuclear power is obvious there, and then obviously too the uh, electric, you know, car revolution um, in China. The government's certainly pushing that as well, and you know they have some significant pollution issues, as you know.
1: Well, yeah, and pollution's certainly a big issue in in China. But you know, one thing that that can't be overlooked is that you know when solar was really kind of getting its feet in the early 2000s to mid-2000s, pretty much all of the global manufacturing capacity was in Scandinavia and Germany. And, you know, Germany was really the the leading company in terms of incentives for, for solar power. And, you know, what right. it came down to in time is, you had developers starting to see production coming out of China that cost a fraction of what the European manufacturers were, were making it for. So in the case where you had roughly ninety percent of, of production in Europe, you know, now you've got ninety percent of production in China. And because ultimately it's it's the lowest cost form of uh, solar power that they found like in terms of, of um, in terms of manufacturing. But you know, back in those yeah. days we were seeing companies on the solar side that were generating 50, 60% gross margins back in that mid 2000 kind of timeframe. Now you've got Chinese companies that are generating gross margins in the 10 to 14% range. And you know, right. again, it comes back to the discussion of it's a race to the bottom. You know, Ultimately you're generating, you're making a panel and focused on creating the lowest cost per kilowatt hour, which opens up new markets globally. But, you know, I I personally, I I continue, you know, there's no way that I believe I I, there's no way that you're going to see the price of solar power go up. It's, It's really is. You know, it's never been a situation of driven by cyclical markets. You know, this secular story that developed in, in the 2000 kind of time frame of the opportunity globally for solar has certainly evolved into more of a cyclical. And I, I believe that anything in time that's secular eventually becomes cyclical. It doesn't matter if it's LED bulbs, cars or or solar panels. But, you know, it right. it is a cycle is typically created by an overbuild of supply, and that's really what you had happen in China. So if we look at the Chinese market today, it for, accounts for more than half of global solar sales. Um, you know, but a lot of that's got to do with incentives that have been driven by the Chinese government and a focus coming back to what you said initially uh, of creating um, a cleaner environment in China.
0: Right, right, and, and, and for an investment you know, fund like green tech And for investors in general, it's, it's more difficult to find these companies where back in the day, you might have had a 50% margin. That's pretty attractive, but now it's getting even more difficult, uh, you know, on, on some of the solar parts and pieces that happen that, that make up the panels. It's, it's harder to find those investments that provide a good margin. So it's, it's interesting to see how how that plays out as well.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, if I look at an area like solar, for instance, I can invest in the whole value chain, right? And and one of the things as an investor that I tend to look at is, really, where do I want to be invested in that value chain? Certain parts of that value chain generate higher rents at certain part periods of time. So, we we're typically focused, you know, and solar is a decent example, just because you end up looking at the constraints and excesses in any supply chain and. You know, if I look at solar specifically, where are the constraints and where are the excesses? And, you know, back in the early days, it was polysilicon. Polysilicon shot up from $18, $20 a kilogram to $500 a kilogram because really there wasn't a global supply of solar-grade silicon. It was really targeted towards the tech industry. And now that we've had a build-out of the supply base, the price of silicon has actually dropped down to roughly $9, $10 a kilogram. Sure. So, you know, silicon is not a great area these days to be invested in. Um, we actually, coming back to some of the discussion that we've just had, you know, our area of focus more lately in terms of higher returns has been the developers. The developers are able to, you know, with declining costs of systems, you're seeing a lot better returns on the development side. And that's that tends to be where we focus our investment dollars these days.
0: So so right now, as as you know, aside from, you know, run of the river, uh, the sun and, uh, you know, wind, uh, all this technology that we're talking about, you know, generally is coming out of the ground uh, in some form. And so from from a, a viewpoint of, you know, the parts and pieces, the components that go into a, a wind turbine, the, the, the stuff that goes into a solar panel, the stuff that goes into nuclear fuel, um, all of these things are coming out of the ground. So do you guys, does Green Tech look at that end, kind of the picks and shovels if you will of, of of the industries
1: we do and it's part of that whole value chain equation that i just mentioned to you earlier so you know in the case of silicon that's that's you know there's silicates that are mined for instance or in the case of batteries it's lithium um, we tend to not focus a lot of our investing uh emphasis around that area uh as as more lately because, you know, when when we look at the mining operations of a lot of these industries, it tends to be less environmentally friendly. Um, Then the challenge becomes, you know, how do I balance the fact that you're investing in solar panels or lithium batteries versus versus the, the initial mining component of it? Really coming back to almost what you said about fracking a few minutes ago, really, um, you know, it's, it's does it end up being that much different? So, you know, I I I would tell you that we were cognizant of some of the the social issues. A lot of it, for instance, hmm. is in um, you know countries that may may be less focused on the social side of things. Uh, but you know, we we are very aware of, of some of those those issues. Um, you know, in in time, I think all of this ends up becoming. You know, much more environmentally focused, and we, we, we monitor that. We look for opportunities, um, you know, to invest where it there's a, a strong ESG angle to uh, to whatever company or whatever technology we're looking at. Um, you know, an example might be Johnson Matthey is talking about coming out with uh, uh, a form of lithium battery that uses no cobalt. You know, cobalt has inherently a lot of issues in terms of uh, African mining uh, and um, more social issues, obviously. But, um, but you know, that's been one of the controversies associated with uh, with um, lithium batteries.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, for us, you know, all of us, we we try to, as humans, we consume things and we enjoy modern life, in which whether it's our iPhone that we plug in at night or you know, products that we use, electric vehicles, all of this stuff. Whether you fool the the investors or fool the people or not, all this crap's coming out of the ground. And most yeah. in, in most yeah. cases. And so you have you know you have these different these different things. And so ultimately, you know, you do look at these industries. You look at the supply supply demand fundamentals. Whether it's talking about uranium today, which is a hot topic, or vanadium for uh, you know different types of battery technologies, or nickel or cobalt. Um, or oil,
1: oil or natural gas,
0: right? Sure. So what's your thoughts on on the battery side? Tell us, what are your thoughts on on nickel and vanadium uh, making up a larger part in in these, in this new battery technology?
1: Well, we think it's, you know, we think it's good, but ultimately like, you know, what what we, we come back to every time, you know, you mentioned a lot of that, those, those um, good and bad things is ultimately, is there a better way to do things, right? That's sort of, what I kind of yes. term as, as creative destruction. And, you know, is there a better way to have a car operate? And, and you know, or is there a better way to generate electricity? And, you know, I, I, I clearly there's a lot of corporate interests that are built up, built up that are not that fond of the rise of the electric vehicle, for instance, or, yes. you know, things that use energy more efficiently. But, you know, when I look at one of the big, I think, one of the big disruptors that sort of overlooked generally is data. Uh, everything today is being measured. It, it doesn't matter whether it's your electricity system in your building or the amount of water consumed by, you know, plumbing, etc. Like, like everything is being measured these days, and and it's it's driven by data. Data drives the value of data. I think is highly underestimated, and data is going to drive uh social change i think it's going to drive high, much higher efficiency across every industry and right you know be it you know and and ultimately if i can look at a battery for instance and are there characteristics that are driven by data for instance that would su- suggest more use of vanadium or or nickel or less use of cobalt or you know can we come up with a better way of doing things and i think that that's that's ultimately what we look for we look to the disruptors, right? We look for the companies that that are making a difference, and it might be small nuclear reactors in one case, or it might be electric cars in another case, or or solar panels. But ultimately, sure. you know, I think it's a, one of the thing is as far as what we do is that disruption is a plays a huge part in sustainability, and you know, it, can I come up with a a better way of doing things. Can I come up with a cleaner way of doing a fracking, for instance? And yeah, you know, I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely possible. It's 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 incumbent upon us to find the companies that can do that.
0: Right. Absolutely. So hey, let's. There's a few more few more things I want to get yeah. to before we wrap up the call. Uh, so sure. uh, switching gears is yet again, uh, David. How does green tech approach the fact that the broad market bull cycle is getting tired? How are you positioning the firm for an eventual decline?
1: Well. You know, that's an interesting question. And, and, um, you know, ultimately it comes down in our minds to cyclical versus secular. And, you know, when I look at a lot of these emerging technologies, if that's what you want to call them, or disruptors, you know, we, we we look really at a company that's adopting sustainability, as a company that is likely gaining market share. It's growing faster than its peers. It's expanding margins because it's reducing waste of, say, things like energy and water in its process. Uh, It's it's acting more efficient, and ultimately it leads to a lower cost of capital. So, you know, in the end, we see this as beneficial for companies, but we want to own the companies that are going to grow for a long period of time. And, you know, and, and. I think it's a fair thing for you to come back to me and say, well, you just said a minute ago that everything secular eventually becomes cyclical," And I do believe that's the case. But I do think that it's incumbent upon us to find the the secular growth companies today. So that might be an electric drivetrain company. You know typically an auto cycle is is 5 to 7 years so you know in the case of automotive shifting from gasoline to electric for instance we think that this is going to be a, a very long period of time but we also think those companies that are driving change in the automotive industry companies like a borg warner or a delphi that are making uh, alternative powertrains They've got a long growth curve ahead of them because they have to be designed into, into vehicles. And we're also seeing the decline of diesel. So the market share shift as far as uh, as far as automotive goes. But, you know, we do think that there are companies that are going to grow faster than the cycle as a result of having higher content or providing disruptive products or services that come to, at, a, at a cost to the incumbents. That are maybe slower to switch or companies that don't adopt sustainability as fast as others so you know to to answer your question while we do see this bull cycle you know or, or expansionary cycle as very long in the tooth you know having started in in 20 or 2009 you know we're also seeing the opportunity to find uh those companies that can actually grow regardless of the economic climate uh, companies that you know that are are achievers, companies that are are disrupting and providing a better way of doing things, that allows them to grow their content faster than those companies that are not doing so.
0: Okay, no, that's that's interesting, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see how some of these you know react when when liquidity. Uh, hits on the downside. And, and, you know, I, as you know, sometimes some of these equities, they all get waxed no matter where they yeah. are.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think, it, I think you have to look at everything in terms of, um, you know, it's a, it's a relative game to, to an extent, right? Sure. Um, right. ultimately, you know, if the, if the market's down 40%, as it was in 2000, the 2008 timeframe, you know, can you outperform that market? Can you find companies that are well positioned to grow, um, you know, and, and, if I look at a company, for instance, on the solar arena, for instance, if you saw a market decline, can this company grow their earnings regardless of the economic climate? So, yes. you know, that's the type of company that we're looking for. We're we're looking for a company that can continue to grow or outperform regardless of market conditions.
0: Right. No, that's interesting. And uh, if you can have that kind of robust setup, that's a good place to be. So back coming back to Tesla. So a, as you know, And and I'll certainly give some credit there as well that, you know, uh, the leader, the leadership at Tesla has been visionary. It has really advanced the EV revolution or, you know, the the electric vehicle stuff that's going on and battery technology. And so it's it's quite impressive where they've gotten with going forward. And and, and with that, you know, we've the taxpayers, all of you and us, all of us have have indirectly supported the the advancement there and, and so forth. And Tesla Tesla remains yet to become. Tesla, in my opinion, is, is to become an operating automotive manufacturer versus a technology leader is the big question mark. And, and can the company with their current balance sheet continue to plow ahead or how do you see the the big the big elephants in the room, the Mercedes, the Toyotas, the Hondas, uh, those types of companies with their balance sheets and their longtime operational expertise? How do you see them coming into the EV market and do you see Tesla continuing to lead or do you see Tesla kind of passing the keys off to somebody else going forward over the next five to 10 years?
1: Well, you bring up a very pertinent issue. Uh, you know, I, what I would say is is Tesla, at least now, uh, as of the last quarter and, and what uh, Elon Musk is saying for this quarter uh, is has turned the corner and become cash flow positive now the model 3 clearly um, was a very difficult exercise to uh, commercial viability and you know now the latest numbers I've heard is that they're at a thousand vehicles a day in terms of production now what's important is market share and you know can you generate volumes the auto industry uh, is highly, highly fixed cost industry. Uh, it's very dependent upon volume. And you know, you brought up an interesting point that we've talked about before that's very uh, important. Is this a tech company or is this a manufacturing company? So a lot of the disillusionment that happened in what I would call alternative energy to clean tech on the VC side in probably the 90s and 2000s was that this was tech and that these VCs would see a return similar to what they've seen you know, by investing in the Facebooks, the Googles, the Ubers, et cetera. The, the, the fact is, is, always, is that an auto company is highly capital intensive. You're building massive factories. In the case of Tesla's Fremont facility, you're talking about 500,000 units per year of production. That's a lot of cars and clearly a lot of investment in people, a lot of investment in facility, et cetera. And so can they get to the point where they're economically viable? They've gotten to that point now what's the response of the competitor market share so the response ultimately coming back to what I'd said initially is is you know do you become irrelevant in the marketplace and so um, let's take this all back to economics and and I think that the, the one thing about electric vehicles is certainly that there's they're low emission they're very environmentally friendly, but again, the only way you get mass market acceptance is green has to be green. The economics have to be more favorable to the consumer. I mentioned the LED bulb. We've talked about solar. But it, you know, really, when we look at automobiles, what does it cost me to fill up my car today? In the case of an SUV, maybe it's 75 to to $100 to buy gasoline. If I have an electric vehicle, what does it cost me to plug in my car at night and have anywhere from 200 to 400 miles of range the next day? The numbers I've i 've been reading are in the range of two to five dollars depending on the market that you 're in so if I can get that kind of uh, um, range, which is pretty much the same as my gasoline vehicle for a fraction of the price, it ultimately comes back to what is the initial cost of the vehicle so clearly we've, we're aware that the, of the price of, of um, Tesla vehicles. You know the Model 3. We had heard about 35,000. The reality is it's been much higher because of uh, mix in terms of uh, of options, range, etc. The Model S, I believe, it's north of 70,000. The Model X is north of, I believe, 80 or 90,000. But is that a, a price that's attractive to the consumer if I factor in the cost of of operating the vehicle? And you know when I look at the, the primary operating cost being the cost of electricity, and the fact that uh, the service costs on an electric vehicles are much lower uh, than a gasoline vehicle. Um, by the way, dealers hate electric vehicles because there's no, really no service component to them. But that said, you know, can I buy a car at parity or less to a gasoline vehicle? And you know, when I look at the, the cars that they're talking about coming out with uh, now. Um, really, really, actually, pose an interesting conundrum for Tesla because, I, you know, what I've heard about the Mercedes, for instance, the Mercedes EQC, is that it's going to be priced in the seventy thousand dollar range, which, you know, is, is much less than the Model X. Um, it's certainly probably more. It's more of a market price for a small luxury SUV. Uh, in the in um, the situation with Audi's e-tron. Very similar. I'm, t- I'm hearing seventy thousand uh, dollars in the c- case of the Porsche Taycan, which is really a sports car. They're saying probably somewhere in the range of seventy to ninety thousand dollars, which is probably it's actually cheaper than a 911, but it's it's respectable as far as the price of a, a sports car goes. And by the way, Elon Musk sports car, he's talking about two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you know. Do you get to the point where the consumer can actually buy a car, an electric vehicle, for the same price or less than a, than a gasoline-powered vehicle, and not have the marginal cost of service and and gasoline? Volkswagen is talking about setting up a facility here in the United States to manufacture electric cars that we price in the range of twenty to thirty thousand dollars. You know, clearly at that point, if you can do an, an electric car for twenty to thirty thousand dollars and have the all the characteristics of low cost of operating uh the vehicle you know i i think it's a very difficult proposition for you know tesla's obviously going to come have to come down in price to maintain market share or come out with different products which they're talking about doing as well so you know i i guess at the end of the day it really comes down to what is the the economic scenario and your point about balance sheet is very valid. You know, to, one question is Daimler making money at $70,000 on that new electric vehicle. Is Audi making money? You know, an interesting point that I mentioned the, the Porsche Taycan, they announced yesterday that they're actually going to up their production targets for that the, the run of, of uh, Taycan that's coming out based on the order flow that they're getting already. And they're adding a second vehicle type called the uh, Gran Turismo I believe but you know it, it really comes down to having a, an array of vehicles Bloomberg says by 2022 we're going to see 300 different models globally. Tesla's had the lead I'm, I'm absolutely no question about it um, you know is it five years is it ten years but they've, got, they've definitely got the lead he's broken the market open he's caused everybody to blink and and he's done made it happen probably five to 10 years ahead of when it would have otherwise happened.
0: Right. Absolutely. No, it's, it's interesting to see where it'll play out and, and with the economics of these businesses when you factor in the, the consumer credit cycle as part of this, And the fact that, uh, you know, specifically more in the U.S., the the GMs and so forth tend to offload these vehicles. Uh, We don't care. We don't care if you're if you're if you're, you know, someone who's going to repay the loan or not. I mean, they they are really pushing these out. And so it'll be interesting to see how the credit cycle plays into these these manufacturers who are just rolling these cars out.
1: Well, yeah, and they've, they've got the balance sheet to say, hey, look, we can't afford to be obsolete. You've obviously got five to 10 years of, of lead on us. And, you know, are we selling these things at a profit? Nobody will know. They don't, they never break out the, they're, they're, you, know, they're, you, know, they're, you know, they're a fraction of their total production. There was there were rumors that, that Toyota never made money on the Prius, you know, but I I think now automobile manufacturers have become aware that people will buy electric cars if they're good looking cars, you know, sure. and that's. You know, I'm not trying to offend anybody who owns a Prius, but it's never been the best looking car on the road. Now you've got Teslas, you've got other cars that are coming out that are very attractive, very consumer appealing cars that ultimately can win significant market share over time. But, you know, a company like a Daimler can afford to lose money on this, realizing that they have to price it in line with the market uh, for, for the incumbent vehicles. And you know, at that price, it will be interesting to see how the consumer reacts is what, what I will be interested over the next three to five years.
0: Right. Yeah. And these, these automobile manufacturers are pretty capital intensive, as you said. And and unless there's another type of uh, 2008, 2007 type event where you can scoop up these auto manufacturers for pennies on the dollars, I, I think I'll
1: stay clear of, of these folks for now. Well, well you know, but, but the interesting thing there, too, is that, you know, I mentioned how the, the, it's a more simplistic design for an electric vehicle. You've got several upstarts, you know there's there's a company called byton for instance a company called neo there's faraday there's lucid uh there was a company that exhibited a pickup truck last week at the la auto show that was extremely attractive vehicle that they're saying will have four to five hundred miles of range so you know are there is there more opportunity for more disruption is there opportunity for more upstart companies to come in with the simplicity of an electric drivetrain as compared to previously where you didn't see many successful new companies, disruptive companies come along and upset the auto industry. Right.
0: So, so give us a give us a dollar range of the size of deals that Green Tech does, and also give us the time horizon that you guys look for at your firm for these investments.
1: Well, so so as I mentioned, there's two sides to the business. One is the asset management side, and one is the uh, investment banking side. Uh, on the banking side. I, you know, I'd, I'd be hesitant to give you a direct number, but certainly, uh, you know, we are, we're involved in m and we're involved uh, uh, in financings related to uh, uh, public and private companies. Um, on the asset management side, we tend to uh, look at companies in excess of a, a $200 million market cap up to many billions of dollars. Uh, but as, as we sit today on the asset management side, uh, we're just under a hundred million dollars, as I mentioned, um, and looking to raise uh, more capital as uh, as time allows.
0: And and how about the time frame for your guys' investments?
1: Uh, typically, we look to own something for at least a year. So, you know, we we um, uh, we we tend to be what we call value of a catalyst. Uh, investment style. So we like to buy value, but we also realize that value can be uh, a trap at points. Uh, So we need a catalyst that's going to unlock that value. So, you know, that catalyst could, could play out in six months. It could play out in 12 months. It could play out in two years, but, you know, ultimately we want to buy things with, with significant amount of upside uh, in relation to the the risk or uh, to the downside. So, you know, we, uh, ideally, I'd like I, uh, we've got some names in the portfolio that have been around since inception. We're hitting our fourth year now uh, in terms of operations, but you know we could easily own companies in excess of three years.
0: Okay, very well. So uh, David, how can potential investors reach out to you in Green Tech?
1: Uh, you can either contact myself, David Smith uh, or Rob Schultz, who's uh, Chief Operating Officer of the firm. And uh, my email is david at gcainvest.com, and Robert uh, is also available on the website, but it's Robert Schultz at greentechcapital.com.
0: Okay, and the, uh, the, is there any requirements online for, you know, just stuff about accredited investors and your guys' minimum investments and, and so forth online, or yeah. do they need to contact you directly about that?
1: No, that's that that should be all available. And any 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 questions that can't be answered, we'd certainly be able to answer them. Uh, in a discussion. Okay. Well,
0: well, David, we appreciate you taking the time and coming on today, and it was a great, extensive discussion. And and we look forward to having you back again.
1: Well, we'd love to chat. Thanks.